0: So a number of years ago, at a Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, I ran into a friend I hadn't seen in a while. We were in the hallway between workshops at one of those, hey, hey, how are you? What's going on in your life? And she said to me, when I asked her that question, just dropping right down to the really real, she said, I've been working on my practice of compassion. Wow, say more, I said to her. And she did. She explained that her Buddhist teacher was asking the students to practice unconditional love and compassion. And to open their hearts to that practice, the teacher asked them to imagine an animal, a pet, that they loved. My friend had a dog, and her assignment was to imagine putting her hands in on the dog's head, around the dog's head, running her through the dog's hair, feeling that love she had for this animal. And as we talked there in this hallway at this convention, people moving by us, I immediately thought of Cowboy, an Australian shepherd dog we had when I was growing up, and I imagined my hands around his ears, my nose pressed up against his his forehead, his head, and my heart just opened open with unconditional love and compassion. Maybe you can imagine that. Maybe you have a dog or a cat or an animal or have had that moment. And the practice, my friend said to me, the practice is to love yourself as deeply, as unconditionally as you do this dog, this animal. To love yourself as deeply, as unconditionally as you love this animal. I felt the truth of what she was saying. I took inventory of my own life and realized she was speaking truth that I could not, in fact, turn that unconditional love on myself without this immediate activation of voices in my head, the judges, the critics, the naysayers. We all have this community of people in our heads, I think. They started shouting and texting <laughs> and emailing to my inner inbox. And every message was essentially the same. It said, Are you really worthy of that kind of love? I'm not really sure you deserve that. And I stood there in this hallway, stunned that it was no problem, no problem for me at all to imagine loving Cowboy, my dog, the family dog, with this fierce, unconditional love. But for myself, that was a different matter. Last week in this sanctuary, I spoke about no going back moments these no-going-back moments in our lives, and how those moments, those before and after moments, even if they're joyful moments, like getting married or having a child, they can so often be laced with grief. I focused primarily on grief last week, but I believe that fear and resentment and anger and disappointment can also be a part of those no-going-back moments. We move on with our life. Something has happened. A threshold is crossed but we cross that threshold carrying right, the rock of a grudge or of anger. We cross that threshold carrying an unmet expectation that we hope will be met. We cross that barrier, that threshold, as Elaine said in our cycle of life, holding open the doors to this museum where we have on display our resentments and our pain. Forgiveness offers a way out from the weight that we carry when we cross those thresholds. And so this morning, so deeply touched by your words, I I want to focus on forgiveness, but especially on self-forgiveness. So that the load we carry might be lightened. Brene Brown, how many of you have heard of Brene Brown? Or She's of TED Talk fame. Have you seen her TED Talk? She's, she's a sociologist and an author uh, and a researcher, and she has done incredible work around vulnerability and grief and shame. Just fascinating work on this. And if you haven't seen her TED Talk, it's 20 minutes, and I suggest that you check it out. She suggests that for any kind of forgiveness to happen, for forgiveness to happen at all, something has to die. An expectation we're holding has to die. For forgiveness to happen at all, something has to die. An expectation we're holding on to has to die. Think about this in the context of your own life for just a moment. Perhaps you were, or maybe you are right in this moment, deeply hurt because you had a particular expectation of someone and how they would be, how they would act what they would do what they would say and then they did something that completely shattered your expectations so there's this great cognitive dissonance of I wanted you to be this I thought you would be this you said you would be this and yet you're dealing with a reality that is other something that has happened and now your life is moving forward these are just examples I lift up maybe they resonate in your own life this moment of expectations of someone completely being shattered. I can't believe, I can't believe, you might say to your partner, I can't believe you cheated on me. I thought we were working through this. Or you promised me, you told me, you said you were staying sober. Or I just, I just got a call. Honey, I just got a call from a collections agency today, and there's a card with my name on it that has $15,000 in debt. What is going on? You can add, I know you can, your own moments of shattered expectations, those moments when you thought someone would be or do or say something other than, so different than what actually happened. And Brene Brown teaches us that for forgiveness to happen something, most often that expectation, that has to die. Let me say this again in different words, in words from Mary Hayes Greco, a teacher of forgiveness and author located here in the Twin Cities. She says, Forgiveness is the profound experience of releasing an expectation that has been causing one to suffer. Forgiveness is the releasing of an expectation that has been causing one to suffer. For forgiveness to happen, we have to release, to let go. We have to let die the expectation, the museum doors we've been keeping wide open. And when something dies, and this is where I was pointing last week, when something dies, we grieve we grieve, and grief, as I said last week, is one of those feelings we will do almost anything to avoid. We will avoid it like the plague, most often. And again, put this in the context of your own life. How often have you been deeply hurt or grieving or carrying a grudge or something? And someone says to you, or maybe even the person that hurt you says to you, "Hey, how how are you? How are you doing?" And you say, "I'm okay." Or, nah, you know, it's really, you know, it's really no big deal. Or, hey, you know, I'm, I'm over it. I'm just, I'm just over it. I don't want to talk about that. I'm over it. And nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Inside, you're this seething, grieving mess holding on to these expectations that cannot be fulfilled. The hurt has happened. The past cannot be changed, but you're holding on to it seething and grieving. That means we stay stuck in the past and never get to forgiveness because the way to forgiveness is through grief. And if we avoid the grief, then forgiveness is a hard journey to be on. Back to the story of the dog, of cowboy, or conjure up the animal you were thinking of, and the practice of self love, and compassion. Talking with my friend those years ago, I realized that for self-compassion to take root in my life, I needed to make amends with myself, to apologize to my tender heart for withholding the love it needed. And for this forgiveness to happen, something had to die. There had to be a releasing of expectations. And what needed to die, I became clear on this, what needed to die was the expectation I was carrying around with me about being the perfect Justin. Maybe you carry that expectation as well. Not of me, (laughs) but of yourself. But of yourself. That expectation of, I have to get this right, I have to do it right, it needs to be perfect. Maybe you know the perverted voices of that expectation, the voices that say, you're not worthy of love unless, you're not worthy of love until, it's always conditional with those voices. And I knew if self-compassion was going to blossom in my life, that expectation that expectation I had of myself, I had to die again and again and again. It is ongoing work for me, for so many of us, because I can begin to create these very dangerous, high-expectation, imaginary worlds where I always can say the right thing to you all, to my family, to my friends, to guests at a, at a dinner table. And in this imaginary world, if I don't, watch it and pay attention to it. In this imaginary world, when it comes to Sunday mornings, I have this expectation that I will weave together the perfect sermon that will speak to the atheists and the humanists and the theists and the Buddhists and the liberal Christians and everybody else who's here, and they will all leave (laughs) feeling like, oh, he really spoke to me this morning. He saw me and recognized my theology. That was fabulous. That is a dangerous expectation that I carry, that any of us can carry, but it comes up for me. More recently, this imaginary world where I'm perfect has been popping up as we begin this journey around our racial justice learning and work together. And if I'm not mindful and grounded in my practice, my spiritual practice, I start to believe the lie that I and all of us have to do this work perfectly, that I have to name and hold all of the nuances of racial justice work perfectly, that I have to speak to and recognize the experiences of people of color and to name that as best I can, that I have to reassure the white people in this congregation that this is not about guilt or shame And in that imaginary world where perfection rules, I start to think that I can't make a mistake in this work, or none of us can make a mistake in this work, because then people will leave and the journey will fail. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Maybe it's not racial justice work, but something else in your life. And I'm here to say that the idea of perfection, the idea of perfection, that has to die. Because let me be clear, I am all in on the racial justice journey that we are on. I am all in in a big way on this work, but I will not do it perfectly, we will not do it perfectly, but I am in and I am committed. I am committed to listen deeply to the experiences of people of color and to respond to what I hear, to listen to the white people in this congregation and to respond to what I hear. I am committed to doing this work with love and courage, but I'm giving up all hope of doing it perfectly. What needs to die, to be forgiven, what needs to be released is the notion of perfection, the perfect self, the perfect family, the perfect child, the perfect mother, the perfect life, the perfect church. That needs to die so we can take risks and be bold and grow in our faith. Amen. Let me hear that again. Amen. 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 That needs to die, friends. It kills us. It cripples us. It poisons us. It covers the light in each of us. And the truth is, the truth is that we as human beings are promise-making, promise-breaking, and promise-renewing Creatures. That is what it means to be alive. We make and break and renew our promises. A life of faith, after all, is about promises and process, not about perfection. And that is where the heart of this faith, the heart of this faith, saves me. What saves me is the knowledge that our universalist forebearers proclaimed an all-loving God They understood each human being to have inherent value and worth, no exceptions, no conditions. And I'm in. I believe that. I believe that deeply. I believe there is nothing we can do to lose the love that the spirit of life has for each one of us. There is nothing we can do. To lose that love. And we are invited to be that loving in our own lives. That love from the spirit of life, God, call it what you will, it's simply there. It is available. It is abundant. It is wide and deep. And it embraces all of creation. And let me tell you when I watch our son sleep at night, when I walk into his bedroom, and I see his long body stretched out on that bed, and I see his chest slowly rising and falling, I can't put into words. You understand? I can't put into words the feeling I have for him. It is a love so deep, so expansive, so unbelievable, that I want to wake him up (laughs) and tell him That I love him. And my wife always says, don't do that. (laughs) You can tell him in the morning. It's okay. You can tell him in the morning. But in those moments when I stand at the side of his bed or in the door looking at him, seeing him sleeping there, I have some inkling. I can begin to imagine what it might be like to be held in the gaze, to be held in that loving gaze of the spirit of life that surely holds us all in that gaze, whether we're sleeping or not. Standing by his bed reminds me that we are born out of love. We live in that love. We are held accountable by that love and we return to that love. This knowledge of love can give us courage. Courage to release, courage to let go, courage to let die the expectations that we're holding onto. And we need that courage. We need that courage so we do not leap from the injury right to letting go in a kind of pseudo-forgiveness. I'm fine. It's okay. Another way to say this is that when the thundercloud looms overhead Don't rush inside. Don't try to stay dry. The downpour cannot be stopped, and sometimes we just have to let the rain wash over us, cleanse us, invite our own holy tears to fall along with the rain. We need to grieve so we can let go. The danger is to jump to letting go, without naming the hurt, without seeking to understand what happened and why, even if the why ends up being random. We need to be in the storm. We need to feel the hurt or the pain or the grief and then move toward letting go. Otherwise, it's a false letting go. And we all have them. I do. We have these museums and these relics and these little shrines we've built. Like, I'm so over that. As I was writing this sermon, I thought of half a dozen experiences in my life, probably more than half a dozen, a bunch, (laughs) where I haven't let go. I'm like, I'm so beyond that. And I actually went back to the experience, whatever it was, and I was like, I can't believe how much stuff is still here. I can't believe how much this influences the people I see right in front of me because I'm still living back 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Without processing, it's not a legitimate letting go. And what really struck me, what really struck me deeply in preparing for the sermon and reading about this sermon was some of the parallels between forgiveness work and the racial justice work that we're on and how both of those require us to be deeply attentive to the process to the feelings, to the integration of what's happening and what we've experienced. What struck me, and I know you're holding a lot, so just hang with me here as I share this last thought on the racial justice piece. What struck me about both of these is that they require us to stay present and engage in the process and not jump over key pieces of the work. In our first training, let me tell you what I mean. In our first training, a couple of weeks ago, Heather Hackman, our trainer, told us that the right sequence for this racial justice work is to learn, so to learn the content around race, racism, and whiteness, to learn, to integrate, and then finally, later on, begin to implement. So to learn first, to learn first, to integrate that learning, to feel, to process, to reflect, to check in with others, to grieve, perhaps, and then finally, to begin to implement and to act on what we've learned. One of the greatest dangers she shared with us in that training, one of the greatest dangers for white people, as we do racial justice work, she said, is to leap straight from what we've learned to good intention but not very well thought out implementation. Are you with me here? And we skip that integration, integrating time. And I think in both forgiveness work and in racial justice work, if we skip the feeling place, the place of integration where old knowledge and expectations can die, can be let go, can be released, so we can be open to something new being born, new vision, new awakening, if we skip that place, then we short circuit the process and we do not move any closer to healing and wholeness at all. It's a lot to hold. And I'm not going to stand up here on this Sunday morning and tell you that this is easy work, any of it. It's not. There is no magic wand I can wave that will take away the pain of your life, the pain of a betrayal. There's no magic wand I can wave that takes away the history and the horrible legacy of racism. None of this work is easy but in the muckiness of our grief and forgiveness work, in the midst of those expectations dying and something new being born, let us reach for what we love. In the midst of our racial justice work and the mistakes and heartbreak that surely await us, let us reach for what we love. Let us reach for healing and wholeness. Let us awaken and reach for the healing and wholeness that sets us free in the midst of this imperfect paradise. May it be so. And amen.